0: Welcome to the Online Bodyguard Podcast with host Philip Grindel, CEO and founder of Diffuse, a global threat and intelligence consultancy that blends psychology and intelligence to mitigate threats and risks to prominent people and brands. So welcome to another edition of the Online Bodyguard Podcast with uh, me, Philip Grindel. And today, my very special guest is Melissa Muir, once met, you'll never forget uh we've been linked in for some time but we only actually met recently at the threat assessment conference in montana in the us and we were sat at the same table together and we were we were the two opening acts for um for uh, uh, the presentations of the of the two days and i i i could remember sitting down uh, after doing mine and sort of thinking thank god for that it's over i can relax now and um on you went and I was kind of mesmerized because it was so inspirational. And I don't mean that in a kind of, you know, jump up and down Anthony Robbins type way, but in, in the way of, I, I found it fascinating how you took a subject around the use of language and words and made it so relevant to the world of security and threat, ma- threat management, etc. Um, but We'll come on to that, but it, it was just fascinating for me. And I, and I, you know, I said to you before we press record that you know, for me to say, oh, Melissa's a, a human, you know, human resources specialist just doesn't do you justice because you're clearly so much more than that. So how would you describe yourself?
1: Thank you. And again, uh, I hope we get to talk a little bit about meeting in Montana. That was fabulous. I think I would describe, right, I am a security adjacent HR professional. And then I think, wait, no, I'm an HR focused security professional. Wait, we actually are such an amazing partnership. I'm a partner in security and HR. And I think that just describing as one or the other reinforces the differences that are are, are artificial and aren't there, right? I have been, I was with the federal courts for 22 years. And in fact, Super excited. Frederick Calhoun is a rock star because I knew his work as a historian because he's done a lot of amazing research on the federal judiciary, independent of his security side. Um, I am now HR director for my hometown. I had the benefit almost 15 years ago now of uh, uh, stumbling into threat assessment and threat management again because I dealt with an HR employee relations matter in a way that uh security had other thoughts on and 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 frankly we didn't have a very good relationship and it caused me to step back and look at it and the moment I got there I realized oh my gosh we have the same ends right we are both protecting the organization and protecting our employees and we're doing it in ways that are often adversarial and we're creating false conflicts. So for the last 10 or 15, in addition, kind of my day job of all the things that come with being an HR director is thinking about how to bring the security pieces upstream and and really get into where I think the the joy of it is, is on the prevention side, right? Not reacting to the headline yesterday about the hospital stabbing, not reacting to this, but saying, I did something with a hire, with a performance management system issue, with a recognition um, opportunity that created an employee who is more satisfied, who's going to stay here and is less likely to become that person who comes back later angry that people in security are worried about, right? Like, I have a chance to make a difference, and i I have a chance to take the tools from people like you and bring them into my world and apply them my way. So I, I think what I hope to be is right. I joke, but in Montana, the reason why we sat next to each other was the table for HR professionals at threat conferences wearing sparkly tights was full, right? <laughs> so I had to come next door, right? And and what I hope is that that joke is not a joke much longer that we are filled with HR people at threat conferences thinking about the ways they do it. I want my goal is to make myself obsolete as a as a unique person and to bring my HR community into this world because the the synergies I think I've shared a few. I'd love if we get a chance in this conversation to share a few. Your world and my world are the same at different points in the continuum of an employee's experience in the organization. And if I can bring the tools that you have and the the experience that you have into upper parts of that, we're just creating a better system for for all of our employees and for our organizations, right? And the ripple effects are amazing.
0: Couldn't agree more. So so, you, you present at the Gavin DeBecker's Advanced Threat Assessment Academy twice a year. Is that right? It's four days, isn't it? But twice a year.
1: I have, and we're rotating around. But I have for the last couple of years. Yes.
0: So, how did that come about, and what is what is people's reaction when they first realize there's a kind of a, an HR element to that conf, that that um, that course?
1: Well, let me, um, I'll answer, if you'll humor me, I'll answer in two stories. Um, And story one is sort of how it came about. And story two is one example I see of the impact. So um, I was in Boise, Idaho, speaking with a biohazard expert on insider threat. Again, not a typical HR topic. It's super fun. And I will just, like, give my punchline away. I talk about the American trader, I talk about Benedict Arnold as a workers comp case gone sideways and say, look at this from an HR standpoint. This was this was just workers comp handled poorly. Like we could have handled this safety incident in a different way and 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 the world has changed as a result. So we're talking about that and there were two women that came up afterwards that said, you know, from the title of your presentation it was a little dry it was so much fun to start getting and thinking about these security incidents as hr opportunities right as a, a a terrible insider threat um example in the united states just a just a you know five were lost and it was a harassment claim that was ignored by hr that Possibly put this person on the path, right? So, in talking with them, they both worked for Gavin De Becker, and I said, "Do you know Gabby um, Thompson? She's amazing." And it started a conversation, and and that started the connection about the the role of HR and security, and kind of deepened the connection I had with Gabby. And there I was at Gavin De Becker. So uh, it came about through Benedict Arnold, right? So I I thank him for that, um, and there we are. But one of the things that I saw a twofold example, we do a section on, I call it how to say goodbye, because I don't use the term fire or terminate, separate, right? But how to say goodbye to employees. And we've got multiple things going on, and I offer an HR perspective. And one of them is we look at things like what I call soft landings, one excerpt, as Very critical management is like, why would we reward bad behavior? And, uh, you know, and, and the hiring, you know, the managers are very opposed in general to it. And I'm saying we're sending a message to the entire organization how we treat people when we say goodbye. And even if their coworkers hated this person or feared this person, they want to know that they're taken care of for two reasons, right? They want to make sure that person is not angry at them and the organization. And two, they want to know what if it was me? How would you treat me if things didn't go well? So I talk a lot about how we say goodbye and how and the benefits of being humane and generous and not being, you know, vindictive or or, or, and treating the person as a person we want to have a good ongoing relationship with after they've left the organization. At the end, there is a scenario. And I don't want to give away the punchline. (laughs) Training is amazing, but. One of the things that one of the facilitators commented was that after I had joined in those sessions, the ending resolution that groups came up with borrowed some of those ideas and brought some of them in and were actually what the outcome had hoped, right? That people looked at the situation with a little broader perspective as, wait a minute, I forgot, we have these Leave tools. We have these severance pay tools. We have these tools that, as security, I forgot I have in my toolbox that I can use to bring to bear to these, you know, situations of concern. Um, And so, kind of just a reminder is like, hey, think broader. And then, uh, just recently, I had a conversation with a person in a large retail organization, and there had been an argument over a former employee complained about a fifty dollar. Uh, health um, down, I forget, a copay that they felt they were owed. They're a former employee at this point, and they weren't owed it, and they were wrong, and and we were like, it's $50, right? And the security said, I'm trying to convince HR to do it because I think this is a real grievance in this person's mind. He's really fixated and angry at the employer for not treating him right, and I can't convince them that the policy – should be waived or something. And said, well, go to HR. We also have recognition policies and ask if we might tap into our recognition policy and use some of that funding. So we're not violating this and we're not breaking the health uh, benefits rules, but we are. Uh, anyway, they found the money. The employee was grateful. The problem was resolved. And that was an example where HR had thought about it as, firm rules that they didn't want to start a precedent and security thought about it as HR, you're so dumb, right? You don't, you're you missing this picture. And really the solution was easy and right in front of there when HR is thinking. So I think for me, that's the reward of Gavin DeBecker is helping people see, why don't you try to have a different conversation with HR when you go back instead of saying, HR, you're so dumb. Um, you call me at the last minute, you don't tell me information I need to have. Instead of coming in judgmental, come in and say, what policies do we have that might work in this situation? How could we work together? So long answer to a short question. And I just love the idea of opening the world of security to all the tools that we really have at our, at our use.
0: But it's interesting because actually that last piece around, rather than saying what we can't do, it's... Can we work out a way of what we can do? It, it reminds me a little bit of the presentation in Montana because it was about if we change our language, we can actually change the entire conversation. Um, and I think, you know, this is something that I hear quite a bit when I'm talking to, to clients or potential clients around introducing a workplace violence or an insider threat team. And my view about it being a multidisciplinary team, in terms of security, HR, cyber, who you know, whoever else fits that legal, for instance, whoever else fits that that um, that need in terms of having those multidisciplinary teams. Mm-hmm. Very often, what comes up is yeah, but HR are problematic because of confidentiality issues. Mm-hmm. So, how do we overcome that then?
1: I think we have a great model on the mental behavioral health side already. So, I think thinking about confidentiality, I think we have a couple of tools. One, if we're in a team where we're sharing information, HR may be hesitant, right? I can't share that. That's from a confidential personnel file. Sometimes, clarity in that multidisciplinary group over who owns the information. And who doesn't so hey we're sharing this information but the records are going to be kept you can keep them hr right you can keep that right we don't have to have them let's in for the sake of this conversation bring the information together but the written document you can own right so some of it's like my fear is right hr is rewarded for being risk averse right we are praised by the organization. Our incentives are motivated around saying no, right? Like if I do not take a risk, nothing bad happens. If I take a risk and the organization suffers as a result, I've put the organization at risk. So I, by saying no to you, I kind of guarantee, right? Like by not giving you the file, I can't get in trouble, right? So I think some of it is shifting that away from what's the fear there and how can we get to that? So some of it might be who owns the information, Another example might be um, like we do, at least in the United States, sometimes where um, a psychologist couldn't give the information. I can't come to them and say, I'm a little worried about my employee, Dave, can you tell me, you know, and, and they can't. However, and we heard an example in Montana, I could bring you information, hey, I'm not asking you to tell me what's in your files. I would like to share some information I have about this employee, Dave. I'm a little concerned and I want you to know. HR suddenly can make those connections. And then we might get to that point where we can do something. So some of it might be, how about if you share information with me first and reassure me, and I can now put it in context and I can probably give you something back as a result, right? And I think the great example we heard in Montana was, well, I couldn't tell you if this person was an employee. I couldn't tell you it was in their file. However, if they were, I could could meet with this employee before this thing that you shared me is going to happen, right? You've told me something's going to happen. I could have a conversation with that employee if they were in that situation about blank. So I could take some action even without sharing the information. And I think the um, third piece, at least in the U.S., most of our confidentiality regulations, first of all, may not apply the situation, but they often have an exception, right? They have an exception for exigency. They have an acceptance for an emergency. They have an acceptance for safety. And so sometimes it's like, I know you've got that. I'm very concerned. I want to share this information about the situation. And I'd like you to look at whether there may be some exceptions under our policies. Right? So I think there are a couple different ways. Share information with me and encourage me bring stuff multidisciplinary and let me own my piece of it so I haven't given it away to you, and let's work on whether there's some exceptions that might be important in this particular case. There are three ways. There's more, I'm sure.
0: So what also strikes me, and I think this is relevant for a lot of security people as well, is perhaps the lack of understanding around the behavioural side of threat management and how some of the concerning behaviors that we see are early indicators potentially of a person who is escalating towards not necessarily violence but but escalating towards you know causing a reputational issue or a um causing a a a good employee to leave or or an insider threat what have you and so i think this is this is as relevant for a lot of security people as it is potentially for a lot of HR people and others, in this lack of understanding about how these early behaviours, if we recognise them now, we may be able to stop something further down the line.
1: Yep. Apologise, I'm trying to get rid of this noise in the back. Um, Absolutely. And I think, again, uh, I, I look a lot to the Gallup polls, and I use them from the straight safety side engagement. I think I shared with you the the happiness one is really sobering, right? That the world is very lonely right now um, and um, misery comes up and misery is also connected on a lot of challenging workplace behaviors, right? Whether they are violence risks or less ones um, and people are very unhappy at work um, and those two things are not going away anytime soon and they're huge right and so as you're talking I also look and say there's also a lot of hope there so we're not I, I think sometimes we're not stepping back and thinking about like what's happening with the people in our organizations and how does that mean something right and for me again I'll give a very simple example have you been complimented on your work in the last seven days right and for those people who answer no, and it's about a third of the people that are surveyed worldwide, right, independent of organization country, for those who say no, they have not been complimented at work, half of them are going to leave within the next year and half of them are thinking about it. And that's our group that we're worried about, right? That's the group that is got a grievance, that is frustrated with their boss. And so I say things like, let's step back and say, are we coaching our supervisors on how to give good feedback, including positive feedback. Like, are we reminding people? Are we walking by in the hall and saying, hey, I really appreciated your help in the meeting yesterday. You saved me when the, the audio failed, right? It happened. How much does it mean to that person, right? Can we measure it? No. Do we know that that person is not going to become a, 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 a mass murderer because of it? No. But we do know they're more likely to stay. We do know they're going to be more satisfied. We do know they're going to be less likely to be that person of concern. We know that. And I talk a lot about why are we trying to measure when we sell our threat programs, the threats we averted? Why are we trying to measure the violence that didn't happen? That's hard to do, right? It's like an auditor. If the best you can do is zero findings, your goal is zero. How about if we flip it and say, How much has engagement and retention gone up since we put these safety programs in place? Right. Can I measure it in the bad things that didn't happen? Maybe not. Can I measure it in the good things that did? Right. Because the connection between engagement and reduction in violence is real. So let's just focus on that. Right. Let's look at those things we can do that are easy, easy if changing culture is easy right that that are that are doable and measurable in ways that security sometimes fails like we get frustrated like how do i sell my program to the c-suite when the the, the bad thing didn't happen or how do i sell how do i take advantage of the bad thing that did happen now they're going to be interested and i was like switch that question how do i go in and say engagement is connected to retention We've got to try to keep our employees. Security can be a partner in doing that. That's awesome. Oh, and by the way, people didn't get hurt.
0: And, you know, you, you, know, you and I talked about this in Montana. That also feeds nicely into the the, the current flavour of the ESG credentials in terms of the governance piece around that, which often is difficult, so as you say, to quantify within a, a security uh, uh, conversation, because we're not talking about negatives, we're talking about positives. So actually what is, you know, and also we know that it's hugely expensive to recruit. So why would we want to keep recruiting if we can retain our good staff and make sure that they're performing well because they're happy and they're content in their work and they feel rewarded?
1: There are some measures that for an outstanding employee it can be three and a half times their income. And all the institutional knowledge that we lose when that person goes, right? So the the numbers are real. I think that's where you started this with how do we get HR into the kind of this security world and i'm trying to give examples of how to security come yeah, into yeah. the hr world and i think i'm back to my introduction is wait aren't we in the same world like, yeah. don't we have those same goals which yeah. a healthy organization is a safe organization is an organization that retains employees we have the same interests
0: it's interesting isn't it because if we actually probably looked at what are the goals that are set for a security director as opposed to the hr director how would they how would they be look and what would they be worded in terms of you know zero incidents or or something for the hr for the security guy or girl and the, you know and what would the hr directors uh goals and objectives be and actually this this kind of difference in goals evidences the the gap between how these two are seen when actually they should be seeing to be working together to have closer alliances to be their to, their goals to be probably inter interlinked um, and actually everyone wants to be safe and happy and and content at, at work because we spend so much of our time at work. Why wouldn't we want to feel safe and happy and content and rewarded? Um, so it's an interesting one there about that, about that, that goal setting of, of these departments and what their aims and objectives are.
1: I think, again, if I say, are you engaged and connected and supported at work? if you answer yes to all these, I know you're safe, right? Like, you know, so I, I kind of like, we don't really need to ask safety as a separate question. It is embedded in the other questions. So when we kind of recognize, like, we are literally increasing the same things, and I think the ESJ, uh, ESJ stuff that you talked about was really eye-opening for me because I, I, I wasn't really familiar with that, and I started reading more as you talked, and I thought... Yeah, it's the same. Right. Like, let's measure these positives and recognize we each have a part of it and don't even have to ask them as distinct questions. Right. And I I thought a lot about kind of how we get to the partnership. And and before we started recording, I think we were talking a little bit about those divisions and the silos and those awkward conversations when we're re- literally at the 11th hour and you're like, security, do this. And they're like, HR, do this. And it's like, no, I won't. Yes, you will. You're like, that's not a great place to be for anybody. And I think, okay, how do we have, how do we restart it? How, instead of how do we do a better job at the 11th hour, what does our first hour conversation look like? Right. And um, Kevin Calder, who is a brilliant, threat manager in Vancouver, British Columbia, and I, we did one at KTAP, the Canadian Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. And we did a, a, a scenario of how HR talks, uh, how security talks to HR and the C-suite. And we observed, and I'm just going to say this out loud. My guess is your podcast audience doesn't have a ton of HR people on no. it and may not have a lot of CEOs.
0: No, and, like that. And, and we'd love to attract more of those because they are so important to the conversation.
1: And so one of the things we did was role play, how security often talks to people like me. I think I pretended to be a CEO and an HR director, which is like two hats. Um, And he started with, oh my gosh, I've been to this conference. I've learned some amazing things. We need to make some changes. I want to do, I've got these great ideas for the program. I'd like to sit down and kind of share some of the ways we can really increase security. And then I do the little thought bubble and I turn to the audience and tell you what I heard. What I heard is you're incompetent. I don't like the work you're doing. I would like to increase your already busy workload and I want to make your job harder. And I hear that and I'm like, great, let me look at my calendar. And we walk (laughs) away, right? And we ended. And so and then we walked through for the next half an hour. Deconstructing having a, a do-over conversation, right? And so I, I rely a lot on, um, oh my goodness, Chris Foss, who wrote Never Split the Difference, um, former FBI, a lot of hostage situations, which like people like me in HR, are like don't say scary things, right? Um, but tell me the power of no, right? So we walked in it's like, is now a bad time? Something is simple, right? Because I am ready to pounce on security with a no. So come in with a no question right up front. Give me the autonomy of getting to say no. And now it's kind of off the table and I'm ready to hear you. Right. So rather than waiting, like I've got 16 arguments to convince HR that this is the best program ever. Shut up and listen. Right. Like, ask me something, give me a no chance. Let me get that out of my system. And one of the ones, the most powerful one I have ever heard was when someone came in and said, do you want our partnership to fail? And I went, Oh dear. No. Right. But it got me thinking like, Oh wait, what, how did we get to this point? How do we get out of this place? Right. And that's where we started. And then the next one was, Hey, I've got some ideas about our partnership. I also really am not sure. I know HR's got a lot going on right now. There's been a lot of changes. I'd love, could could I find a little more about what's happening in your world, where your concerns are, and think about how I might add to them, right? Now I'm hearing, okay, you're not trying to take more of my resources. I'm spread too thin, right? And And just those two questions, Changed the whole world, right? Like, then we had this other one I shared, really worried about retention right now. We're losing people, right? They're going where they they can work remotely. They're going here. And they brought in some amazing ideas that started with our orientation, how they could sell stuff, how they could be part of things, how they could bring. We're now doing a safety drill, like, for where the AEDs are and where all the stuff is and where they are at facilities and doing it as a scavenger hunt. If you know me, you know I love scavenger hunts, right? So it involves getting to know coworkers, which is connection, because I'm more likely to report if I feel connected to you, coworker. I'm more likely to share. I'm more likely to call that anonymous line if I know that you'll help and if I'm worried about this person next to me. And I know where things are, and we built all the safety things in, and we throw in prizes and ice cream. This is partnership. Did I answer your question?
0: Yeah, you did. Yes. And, and it's, you know, my mind is worrying because there's so many things there about kind of things got, you think oh God, that would really work. And that would be a really good idea. If we, if we, if we go back right to the beginning of, of, shall we say, the recruitment of an individual mm-hmm. and again, an area where potentially it can be a, 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 a multidisciplinary approach to that. I know we've spoken previously around the importance of, of due diligence or vetting or whatever you want to call it, background checks, et cetera. Can, can you talk about, you know, why that is a critical factor in, in so many other areas of, of the employment process?
1: Yeah. So right now, at least in the U S we're under a lot of pressure to hire quickly because we have people leaving and, People have so many options. So we've had everything from they canceled the interview that they scheduled because they got another job or they canceled the second interview because they got one between the first and the second. They canceled on um, the start date because they got one between the offer and the start date. They canceled the day of the start date because they got – right, like literally. So we're under great pressure to move quickly. So when you compress the time to hire – where do we compromise? We compromise on the due diligence. We compromise on the reference checks. We compromise. And I have a million stories, and unfortunately, everyday organizations create new ones, of where we didn't do the due diligence, right? The high-profile CEO that lied on their resume, and now we have to um, you know, publicly pay them a lot of money and go through the reputational damage and the harm to the organization of not having checked something as simple as were they telling the truth. But the, the, the way we're doing it is to move faster and less securely. What I loved was after a conversation with our security wing kind of thinking this through, they suggested, what if you did the reference checks up front? Before you got to the interview. And our response was, that's going to create a ton of extra work. That's ridiculous. That makes no sense. And why would, and people aren't going to want to give us information and have people check references if they're not guaranteed they're going to get the job. They're not going to take the risk. Well, we decided to try it as a pilot and we went out. And one, people were fine with sharing the information, they were open about their looking. And two, it took a little bit more time up front. And suddenly we have better information going into the interviews. We know something about the person. We know where we want to focus our follow up questions. We know the red flags right up front. like So they never even make it to the interview. So we save that time. And then when we're done with the interview, we're literally done. We're ready to make the offer. Right. So it shortened our time by up to a week, which is real-life offers and real-life people in this, right? Um, And we knew more about them than we ever did. And again, when I'm at the point where I'm a hiring manager and I've got this great candidate, do I want to hear bad news when I call a reference check? Do I want to find out that they're a liar? I'm like, well, they used to be a liar, but I think they're a lot better now, right? I think they lie less than they used to. Sure. Yeah, they defrauded the employer, but they've learned their lesson, and they told right. So all of these things that I joke right don't paint a red flag green. That we do when we're motivated, we don't have that motivation up front. That shift came out of a conversation and a and a embedding within security that did our due diligence that meant. Half of those people that are coming on are not going to be the ones that either leave us or that we have to say goodbye to. So I like to think I'm reducing the pipeline of concerned employees that are heading your way.
0: Did you did you have resistance initially when um, when you were discussing this around why would we pay for the due diligence before we've even identified whether we want them to work for us?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, tons of resistance. And so here was my two-pronged approach. One was to try to quantify it. Here's what it costs to lose employees. Here's what our organization's attrition cost us in the last year. Use real numbers, right? Here's what it we lost in the last six months with hires that didn't go through. Here's what the cost of that due diligence is in times, right? And so showing that. But the second one is, and this is kind of my go-to, is like, If you call it a pilot, everybody's okay, right? So just call it a pilot. And who cares? It could be a forever pilot. That's okay too, right? But so just say, are you willing to try? And if this doesn't work, we're going to sit down in three months and we absolutely are going to stop this if it doesn't work. What came out was the, the extra that we hadn't counted on was when the panel members said having the information up front made the interviews themselves so much richer and so much better that we all felt better about the process. So that was a bonus point. But had it not worked, we would have cancelled in a heartbeat. So again, the numbers, cost-benefit analysis, and call it a pilot. Those are my tips.
0: <laughs> and what are the thoughts then around, we often do due diligence when someone is first employed. But of course, people change and circumstances change over the months and years that they retained as an employee. So, what are the thoughts around continuous due diligence? Because certainly, when I was working for the government, as an example, you, you know, in the police and what have you, and we were vetted, it wasn't a one off process. There was a review period, you know, so that we could assess people whether there was fresh information, whether their circumstances have changed, whether potentially now they were an insider threat because they were financially vulnerable for, you know, because they had a messy divorce or whatever. So what's the what's the sort of thought price from a commercial perspective on that?
1: Sure. I think it's kind of um both carrot and stick. So the stick side, I think, is your policy, right? So if you're in a formal one, maybe you have formal reinvestigations every three years. Um now that I'm not in the federal government, it's a little less of that. But we do things right, like we do driver's license um every three years. And we do those. Some of it is policy, again on the stick side. If you're arrested, you need to report it. If you um, have a restraint, right? So what reporting requirements we have for employees. But the carrot part is where I think the real stuff is, which is have I created a culture of, of safety and care and community that people will come forward? Like, have I made it safe for you to say to your boss? I'm really having a rough time. Can I come in late sometime? You know, like, can I can I work something out that recognizes I'm not in a great place? Um, have we made it safe to share that? Have we made it safe to a coworker that they're not going to get their coworker harmed if they share that they're concerned about them? Have I created employee assistance program that is accessible and with, uh, you know, without a lot of bureaucracy, this, so that someone could really just pick up the phone and call someone and get help right away. Um, so I think those are where, and, and, and we had talked earlier about having faith in the process, right. And the reporting. And I look at it. Um, I think it's in the FBI making prevention a reality publication where they say, you know, I need to be aware of the process I need to know how i can call anonymously who i can call what the number is i need to trust the process i know that if it's going to be treated in confidence if i share it i know that i won't be retaliated against for indicating that i might have been a partnership in something that violates. you know and three do i trust you right do i trust you whether it's my manager or the organization and if i get those three if that's where i put my emphasis on the carrot then the reporting is no longer reporting. It's just the way we talk. It's just the way we take care of our coworkers. It's just the way we bring ourselves in meetings. It isn't, I outed my coworker. It's that, oh yeah, I saw this. We have these programs. We're working, everything's great, right? So I think once we can make it, so the stick is, do you have policies in place that require it? Do you have procedures that are ongoing that we're gonna keep looking at people? But more importantly, have we embedded that in our culture of who we are, that that's a valued thing, not a scary thing?
0: And how do you change culture? I mean, we we have a scenario here in the UK, for instance, where we have a a huge business organization, um, which is one of our main organizations. And they've recently gone through a rocky period where um, it's become apparent there's been some endemic cultural issues around misogyny, etc., you know, in order to change cultures, you know, it's 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 moving a tanker, um, and I think it's such a complex. And and from a threat assessment perspective, I have no knowledge of kind of that world. You know, so what's how do you do that? How do you change culture of misogyny or or the kind of sexual harassment or the guys going out drinking after work and and all that sort of stuff? How 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 does that? work in terms of changing a culture to make it more um a safer place, a nicer place to work.
1: I I talked about it when we first met in person. It's it's one word at a time, right? It's one question at a time. It's one encounter at a time. Because we can it's fragile enough that I can have this great supportive culture and then say something really kind of snarky on the side and immediately destroy all credibility and trust. Right. So building it is one thing at a time. I think it's something is, I I saw an example. Let me see if I can think of it. It was instead of how are you? The question was, um, do you feel safe sharing with me how you really feel today? Right. Or something It was just like, it was just a, a very kind of vulnerable one are you comfortable telling me how you're really doing this morning? And I thought if someone observed that I was having a bad day and instead of saying, how are you down the hall stopped and asked me that, or started our teams meeting with that, that would make all the difference to me. Right? So I think that's right. When, when people in positions of authority some vulnerability and open up in a way, and give you the space to do it and mean it, right? Because I'm going to test it. That's how you change the culture. You know, I, I, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in states looks at harassment and discrimination. And unfortunately, right, it's not harassment that gets organizations. It's the retaliation afterwards, right? Like, sure, we heard this complaint. We looked into it. And then we penalized you for raising it. So the retaliation claims are the biggest. On average, people wait between 12 and 18 months before they report something of concern. If that's true on discrimination, it's also true on safety, right? If I don't feel safe telling you this, I don't feel safe telling you that. If I can create a place where you are comfortable telling me that you are uncomfortable, my culture is changed. That's it, right? So I really think it's the questions we ask and the vulnerability we're willing to show and invite of others.
0: And, and, and what has the pandemic then done to the workplace and the cultures that we exist in them? Because certainly in the UK, you know, we had quite a, quite a severe lockdown. Um, we had a lot of people who now don't particularly want to go back to work because they're very happy working from home. And I would imagine that if you're an introvert, you may be happy working from home. If you're an extrovert, I'm generalising, if you're an extrovert, you probably can't wait to get back to work. But the culture's changed and, and, you know, it's it's people have, you know, I can remember scenarios where people would say, can I can I work from home? And the argument was, no, 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 we don't do that. It's not part of our policy or there's no, you know, there's no reason for it. Of course, now those excuses have gone because people have demonstrated, I can be just as effective, if not more effective, working from home. So how has the pandemic changed, you know, your experience in the US and probably ours in the UK of 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 how people are feeling in terms of being safe at work? I think,
1: um, you know, a lot, again, as I mentioned in this study, people are lonelier than they've ever been, right? 300 million people estimate don't have a friend and, uh, and don't have people that don't have someone they can turn to a need. So we have people that have faced incredible hardships on a personal level, and they're bringing that to their work self. Um, We've got, as you mentioned, people who are thrilled to be at home and people who are missing the connection. Um, We have um, a flexibility, a mobility that we didn't have before. So we're losing people that can work, right? All of those things. So it's a huge pressures at the same time. What incredible opportunities, right? I saw we did a icebreaker question. What's your favorite ice cream? OK, you've heard that twice for me now. Clearly, I have a theme. All <laughs> right. And it turned out, again, I don't know if this goes beyond the Pacific Northwest of the United States, but it turns out all you have to do is say chocolate chip mint and controversy erupts like like people were um, committed. Um what was interesting was this was one of our first leadership meetings where we had 15 people in the room and 15 people on Zoom and, and we were trying to figure it out. Well, it turns out what we did well was take advantage for the people in the room of the things that you can only do in a room, right? Like we had treats, we physically moved around, we did some funny things, right? Take advantage for the people remote of the things that can only be done remote, We did breakout rooms, we did chat stuff, we did, and bring it together. So I think, for me, on the HR side, it's, Stop trying to figure out which is better, which is worse. Meet people where they're at. People are hurting. People are lonely. People are afraid. They're also thriving on the connections that are coming back. They're all right, like they're also hungry for some of the things that we missed during that. So I think it's more like, okay, now I have more options than I used to have. I used to only have these things at a meeting. Now I can do six things. Let's do them all. Yeah, you're only going to participate in some of them, and you're only, but we get the wisdom that all of us bring back in. So I think, I mean, I, again, I tend to skew a little optimistic. That may be obvious. From stuff, but I also think, like, we just had one of the biggest world experiments ever, and we get to take the lessons learned and apply them immediately to make things better, right? Like what an opportunity we've been handed. Like what didn't work? What did work? Let's do more of this.
0: So we're kind of coming towards the end of of our, our chat. And I'm, I guess, interested in flipping it to say, okay, so from an HR perspective, what do we need to learn as security professionals? What are the things that we don't do very well or you think would make life better would would make relationships better would make those partnerships better what do we need to understand what do we need to know that's going to to bridge that gap
1: um well if i were being crude i'd be like stop writing in at the 11th hour and creating chaos and leaving <laughs> me to clean it up for the next 18 months right stop telling me that you're brilliant and you know everything and taking one approach to all situations Okay. now let me step back and let me say, (laughs) give myself my own (laughs) advice, which is bring curiosity, bring vulnerability. I think in the security world and it's not a gender comment, it's not a, a rank comment. There is a feeling that I must be invulnerable. I must be the strongest person in the room because you won't trust me or I won't have credibility as a security if I can show a failing or a weakness. And I would say, challenge that, right? Come in and ask me what you don't know about my world. Share your fears and vulnerabilities about the program, about the things and invite me in right? that I think literally just taking off that suit of armor and laying it at the side of the door when you come in and saying, I want to better understand what's happening from the HR side. And I want to share some of my concerns about my program would go so far. It goes away. So ask me what you don't know um, rather than telling me how much you do.
0: That's brilliant, isn't it? Because it's such an interesting perspective in terms of our role is to identify the vulnerabilities in many cases and solve them. But we never look at ourselves as being the vulnerability or we never look at ourselves as being, um, and sometimes it is, I think it it is potentially a gender thing, but so and sometimes I think it is because the background of many of us has been involved in, Different worlds in terms of military law enforcement, et cetera. Um, where vulnerability is is perceived differently, which I think again is wrong. Um, but I think that's that's such an important aspect. And I think that's really, really strong advice. I'm just thinking, I'm I'm speaking while thinking about myself and thinking about you know how how we would apply that. Because I think i um, I always Ooh, I always try go, it. Well, like, yeah, and I always oh, go back to I always get back to the door. Well, I like, I always go back to the the, the um the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and and you know the, the the one which talks about you know seek first to understand, which is such an important one, but one that you know probably isn't necessarily practiced as as much as it might be. Um, but um, yeah, I think that's a hugely important one around around being as a security professional, as a threat prof- professional, being vulnerable, being being able to be vulnerable, being able to ask advice, being able to to approach HR and rather than demanding something, asking advice and asking guidance or even asking, you know, I'm not sure what to do. What would you do?
1: Yeah. I think in my experience working closer to security, the times that has happened has shifted everything, right? That has been, the difference at kind of opening up a partnership that neither of us fully appreciated how much we could have, I don't think it was that vulnerability. And I do think, right, like all joking aside, like take off that coat of armor when you come in the door and, and we'll have a different conversation.
0: And how do we get more HR professionals then to threat assessment conferences and to, to the, the, you know, security conferences and those, what, what, because I think that's another another important aspect. You know, having you at that conference, I thought was invaluable because it brought a whole different dimension. And it and it was fascinating how every person who spoke after you was so conscious of what you'd said. They they consistently were stopping and thinking. Hang on, I can't say that. I need to reframe or rephrase what I'm no, going to say.
1: zone. I wasn't <laughs> trying to like stop you. Um, I appreciate that. I think. I think the simplest way is focus on describing what you're doing in these conferences in ways that doesn't terrify people like me. Right. I don't want a case study. I don't want run, hide, fight. I don't want active shooter. I don't want whatever it is. Right. I I, I don't want, um, you know, Protective intelligence, counterterrorism, insider threat. I'm not even sure I know what those mean, even though I'm in that world a lot of the time. But when you say, you know, again, I with Dr. Brooks, we started how not to hire a psychopath. I did that as a joke, but now it's a real thing, right? Like, (laughs) because HR people thought that was funny and came to the presentation. How Not to Hire a Psychopath has a lot about problematic personalities and security stuff that HR people were willing to listen because it was like, oh, that's not as scary, right? Because that's funny. Um, So I think just the naming conventions, all joking aside, as you had like one word at a time. If you called it how to increase retention through your security posture right i'd be like oh that sounds way cooler than a case analysis of the latest you know shoot up at a at a at a workplace so i think some of it is help speak my language yeah have like wouldn't it be fun take your conference topics take your articles and send them to an hr person who just rewrites the name doesn't do anything to your content doesn't change anything else but just like would you write this as an hr person and see if it wouldn't change the world
0: well, that's what I'm gonna be doing. I'm gonna be sending you all my articles from now onwards then and saying, I Can you change totally, the title? <laughs> I will totally play with your title. <laughs> well listen, Melissa, it's been it's been as always fantastic chatting with you and, and listening to your um expertise and advice and guidance. I think it it's it for me, it's one of the biggest changes we can make. And I think one of the most effective changes that we can make if we can have more collaboration between HR, employment relations, whatever, whatever different terminology it's called, and the security threat assessment, whatever connotations that's called. Um, because I think we've all got the same intention, which is to make work a safer place. Um, and we can do it much better by doing it together. So thank you so much for spending some time with me. I I, I will definitely, uh, will definitely do this again, because I think it's kind of opened up a whole... My mind is spinning with a whole different... Whole lot of new uh, topics to talk about and think about, and um, and uh, yeah. So I, I I just think it's it's going to be um, a huge topic, something that I think is so important, and I think it's a real problem also for lots of security professionals, particularly some consultants, about how do I approach the HR team? How do I even engage with them to get them interested in what I want to talk about? Um, and maybe maybe again, that's about asking a question rather than rather than posing a solution to them.
1: I think it's great. And again, I'm so grateful for the time we had when we got to talk in person and meet now and just like to be in the company of people like you and Rory and Fred. I mean, like it's it's amazing. And I just think the the greater voice, I hope um, I will take this if you will let me and share it with every HR person I know and say, hang out with this guy. It's
0: amazing brilliant well thank you so much melissa and um we will speak again very soon
1: thank you philip take care
0: thank you for listening to the online bodyguard podcast with host philip grindel ceo and founder of diffuse please rate review and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platforms